right. Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you guys all here, braving the cold and, and coming out. It must mean that you're thirsty for the Word of God. Who is? Who's thirsty for the Word of God? I hope that you're exceptionally thirsty this morning because this is going to be one of those mornings where you're going to be drinking from a fire hose, okay? I have got a lot of information to cover, and, and, and here's why. Um, when I started this series on Acts, and I felt like the Lord was leading me to go into Acts, um, we measured out the time because I also felt like I had a very specific uh, set of teaching for uh, leading up into Christmas, so for the month of December. So we went backwards, and I said, okay, I've got 13 weeks to cover the book of Acts. Now, you could spend 13 weeks on any one of these subjects because it's, it's such an amazing uh, account of the things that are happening in the church at that time, but we only had 13 weeks to do it. But what I don't want to do, I don't want to reach the end of the 13 weeks having felt like, okay, we've gone through Acts and not cover some of the things. You know, I've had people say, why don't you just hit a couple of the highlights? I want you to, at the end of the 13 weeks, be able to say, I have a firm understanding of what happens in the book of Acts and why it happens and some of the backgrounds. Now, there is so much depth that we can go into later. Um, and we'll get into some depth, don't get me wrong, um, but there's a lot to cover, okay? So I want to get going. Now, so those, for those of you who are new or newer here, welcome. We are, as I said, we're in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts starts out in chapter 1, verse 8, and it says... Um, that the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles. Okay, that's the moment where the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, enabling them, giving them everything that they need to go accomplish the great commission of Jesus. So Jesus had come back and he had told, uh, appeared to the apostles and the disciples and said, go forth and make disciples of all nations. Then he leaves and leaves them wondering how this is going to happen. How are we going to accomplish this? And it's at that point in Acts 1-8 where the Holy Spirit then comes upon them and starts giving them these supernatural gifts in order to go out and accomplish what they've been called to do. So that's where we are. We're working our way through Acts. Last week, we talked about Saul. Saul, um, Saul was, was kind of a big deal in the Bible, if you know that. Saul, actually, next week, we get to hear Pastor Gabe teach about his conversion, Saul's conversion, and he becomes the Apostle Paul uh, and does amazing things. But at this point, last week, he was Saul, and he actually starts this rampage against this fledgling church of Christians, or the way, as they were called. Um, and he's, he's a bad dude. He starts a lot of bad things. A couple scriptures I just want to read to you. This is, again, this was from last week, Acts 8.1. The second half of that scripture, and on that great day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, it throws on that last, except the apostles, and it doesn't really revisit that, but just picture, they've got this church, disciples are being scattered now because of what Paul's going to do, and the apostles, they stay behind in Jerusalem to, to shepherd this, this fledgling church that started. And then Acts 8.3 says, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off women and men, and he would put them in prison. So again, Saul, Saul was a bad dude at this, at this time, rampaging against the church. But in the way that God works in his kingdom, God 
is, is amazing. He'll take everything that the enemy intends for evil and he will use it for his good in the kingdom. And we see that promise and here today we get to see that in action. We get to see what that looks like because the persecution that Saul began, this terrible time. Last week I taught that there were over 2,000 Christians that died in about that six-month period where he was rampaging and then countless others who were displaced and imprisoned and tortured and all these different things. But God takes that and he uses that as the spark to then light that fuse that's going to cause the church to just blow up. The church, the followers of Jesus Christ. And by that, it causes discomfort. This explosion causes discomfort. That causes then the disciples to say, okay, we have to leave the nest. We have to leave our safe zone here in Jerusalem. Remember, the church is blowing up. People are converting. This is a great place to be if you're a disciple of Jesus at this point because it is blowing up. But then Saul starts this rampage, okay, which they say, okay, I guess we can't stay here. We need to leave the nest, leave our comfort zone, and go out and begin accomplishing, begin doing the work that Jesus Christ called us to do. So that's, that leads to where we are now. Where we are now this week, we're going to talk about Philip. Okay, we talked about Stephen last, uh, Stephen two weeks ago, two weeks ago, um, last week, last week, Saul, Stephen. <laughs> Yesterday, Gabe said I was going to talk about Stephen today and not Philip, so he get confused, so I understand. Last week, it, it is, it is, Gabe's throwing me off. This week. Let's not focus on last week anymore. Let's talk about this week. We're going to talk about Philip. Philip, sometimes called Philip the Evangelist, okay? I I would submit that he was also the first missionary. So Philip the Evangelist missionary. He was the first to actually go out with an express purpose of saying, I'm leaving this place. I'm leaving where I am, Jerusalem, and I'm going to another place, a foreign land, and I'm going to share the gospel of who Jesus is. So that's where we are this week, and that's what we're going to talk about. So the first scripture we've got is Acts 8, 4, and 5. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. So there's a lot there. We're going to talk about a lot of this. Um, But the first thing I want to talk about is why is this even an important event? So we know that it happens. The church expands. Why does it take all of chapter 8 really to just talk about Philip and his ministry? If you're a Jew, then this probably isn't that an important event. Okay, Jews were already God's chosen people. He had already shared the news of who Jesus was with them, although they weren't getting it. But this is an important event if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian especially, because this is the moment where the decision is made and the effort is made to go out and share the good news of who Jesus is with the Gentiles as well. So if you're sitting in here and you're not a Jew, that means you're a Gentile and you should be thankful that this happened. So it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And in fact, this had been prophesied about years before, in fact, 600 years Prior to this event, it's written in Daniel, and we have that scripture, Daniel 7.14. Remember, 600 years before Jesus, this is written, and to him was given dominion, 
glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Prophesying about Jesus as Messiah coming to share the gospel, sharing the good news, sharing who he is, and sharing the new covenant that he brings. Remember, they had been under the old covenant for so long. At this time, they were under the old covenant when this was written, and this would have been this would have been mind-boggling for the people in that time to believe. Because at that time, only the Jews, only the nation of Israel were God's chosen people. And they thought, we are the ones, we are carrying the message. We are God's chosen standard bearers in the whole earth. And the Gentiles are not to be a part of this covenant. 600 years uh, earlier than Jesus then, Daniel is saying, no, that's not true. There will be a Messiah who comes to share the covenant with everyone. That's why this is important. That's why this is a significant event, and we take the time to do that. And we'll see, we spend a lot of time, especially back in in Old Covenant times, where we talk a lot about building your foundation on solid rock, having a firm foundation, having a firm foundation in Scripture, firm foundation in who the Lord is and in the law and all these things. We talk about that all the time, and a firm foundation is incredibly important, but here's one thing that we can mistake. We can think that a firm foundation means an immovable foundation, Meaning we dig our heels in, we know the law, we know what we're being called to do, we know what we should do, so I'm digging my heels in and here is where I'm called, called to be. And we just stay here. But we'll find out that really in order to accomplish the will of God and what he is calling us to do, we need to be movable. Built on a firm foundation, but we need to be willing to move to where we're called and when we're called. And then answer and be faithful in what we're called to do. This is what the whole story of Philip is about. So let's get going. But let's go back to this scripture, Acts 8, 4, 5. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Okay, a couple things about this. First of all, about Philip. This is not Philip the deacon. Okay, we talked about, uh, I'm sorry, this is not Philip the, the apostle. We talk about the list of the apostles and those who were chosen a long time ago. And if you remember, Philip was one of the apostles, one of the original. But Philip, as we read later, when they chose the seven, remember they chose the seven deacons and they list them out expressly. Now we were focused on Stephen at the time, but hidden in that list of seven was Philip. That's this Philip. This is Philip the deacon not Philip the Apostle. And the reason we know that is for a couple reasons. One, Scripture itself says everyone fled except the Apostles. Okay, meaning the Apostles stayed behind. And we'll find out here in just a little bit, we have even more proof that this is not the Apostle, that this is the deacon. I'll talk to you about that in a few minutes. But this is where we are. This is, this is Philip. He's that deacon, meaning he's a regular guy. He's a regular guy. The apostles had the apostolic authority. They were, they were with Jesus, walked with Jesus. They, they were anointed with all kinds of special things. But once Pentecost happened and the Holy Spirit then came upon all of the disciples, 
then we see that even the disciples, regular guys, so to speak, had amazing abilities, that same ability that lies within us now, that same Holy Spirit that enables Philip to do the things we're going to be talking about here in a minute, lies within you, allowing you to accomplish what God has called you to do. So don't listen to these stories and say, wow, that was a great guy. He was a regular guy who was answering what God had called him to do, and he was willing to be moved. You'll see here in a minute how willing to be moved he is as we start talking about this. So he leaves, the scripture says he went down to the city of Samaria. Let's talk about Samaria a little bit, a little bit here. Here's a map of the region in the time of Jesus. Okay, now you can't read all the words necessarily, but in the middle you can see in the kind of a gray area there, that's Samaria. Up above is the Galilee region, okay, with Nazareth and Capernaum and those places. Um, all, by the way, places that we'll visit when we go to Israel next year. Down in the middle, you see the gray area is Samaria. Okay, when Scripture says the city of Samaria, okay, there is actually a city right now that's named Samaria, but it wasn't at that time. The capital of Samaria was this place called Sychar or Sichar that sits right in the middle. When it says the city of Samaria, it's talking about going to the capital. So this is where Philip heads. And at the time, he's down here in Judea. Jerusalem is specifically right here. So this is where he is. Okay, and he could have gone south. He could have gone all kinds of different ways. He could have gone over here into the Decapolis. Decapolis just means 10 cities. Um, We'll visit one of the cities of the Decapolis, by the way, when we go also. So all kinds of great history here that we'll see. Samaria was at one point the capital of the northern territories of Israel, the northern kingdom. And then Judea was the capital uh, of, the, of the southern kingdom. So he chooses to go there. It's curious why he decides to go there. Because as we've read in Scripture several times, Samaritans, which is, if you're from Samaria, you're a Samaritan. And we hear in Scripture all the time about how Samaritans are not to be trusted. They're not to be dealt with. They're not to be, you don't intermingle with Samaritans. They're kind of their own thing. Why is that? There's a long history, actually, going back in Samaria. Remember I said it was, it was the, the uh, capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. So at one time, it was a great region. But then around 722 B.C., that was conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians, a very warlike tribe, uh, of people, they came down and they actually conquered that region. They were actually rampaging throughout all this region and they conquered Samaria. Okay, Samaria at the time, again, full of Jews, the northern kingdom, full of Jews. And what they did, they conquered it and they turned it into kind of a holding place for prisoners, for outlaws, for rejects for slaves that they had taken from these other regions that they conquered. So they took all these people from regions all over the known world at that time, and they planted them in Samaria. And so these people then began to intermingle with the Jews who were there, with the Israelites who were there, creating, and it's un-PC in these times, but they called them half-breeds. They were Sumerian half-breeds. They were, they were part uh, Jewish uh, Jewish history and, and culture, 
and lineage, and then the other part was just a mishmash from all over the place. And as a result of that, they took their culture, they took their religion, and they intermingled that with Jewish culture and Jewish religion. So they accepted, as at this time right here, the thing that differentiated them and, say, their, their cultural uh, religious beliefs was that they did not believe that the temple in Jerusalem was the one holy place. In fact, they went so far as to build their own temple in Samaria where they went. Remember, Jews from all over the known world would make this pilgrimage into Judea to go to Jerusalem, the temple right there in Jerusalem. They would do that, and the Samaritans said, no, we're, we're going to build our own kind of a competing temple sort of of idea. They did that. They also, while they believed in and adhered to the Torah, okay, so if you're a Jew, you had the entire, at this point, the entire Jewish canon uh, of of the Old Testament was, was around, and that's what they adhered to. But the Samaritans said, no, we're rejecting everything except the Torah. So they accepted the first five books, of the Bible, but they rejected the rest. And so they were considered um, rebels. They were, they were a problem. You couldn't trust them, half-breeds, all kinds of issues. And so this is why you read over and over again about Samaritans. We don't talk to them. We don't deal with them. We just, we just basically leave them alone. Just a collection of, of mixed races and, and criminals is what it was considered. So in the midst of all this, I want to ask you, why do you think Philip, of all places he could have chosen, he chose Samaria to go to? Why do you think that? I'll tell you in a little bit. Think about that a little bit. Why would he choose this of all the places? And we'll revisit that here in a little bit. So we do know that Philip went up there and he started evangelizing. Acts 8, 6 to 8 says this, the crowds with one accord, now this is Philip up in Samaria, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. So he is driving out unclean spirits. He is healing people. Philip is traveling all over, and with one accord, this, this means that everybody was in agreement. This guy, Philip, he's doing some amazing things. Let's, let's go out and, and see what he's doing. And they were starting to believe, and they were starting to rejoice. Look at all the great things he's doing. But there was also somebody else in that region who was at the same time doing great things, air quote, fingers, great things. His name was Simon. Simon has a last name, but for posterity, remember him as Simon the Sorcerer, right? Simon the Sorcerer was also traveling around Samaria at the same time that Philip was there. In fact, had been there for quite some time already. And Acts, I'm going to read it to you. Acts 8, 9 to 11 records this about Simon. It says, now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is called the great power of God. 
That's what they were calling him. That's what he called himself. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with magic arts. So the magic arts that Simon the sorcerer was doing, magic what is kind of a combination back then of what he was doing. A combination of astrology, a combination of uh, divination or fortune telling, and a certain amount of science. Okay, think about it. A couple thousand years ago, what would it take if you knew just a little bit of science, a little bit of astrology, what would it take to look like something amazing? Simple what we would call just science tricks that you would see in a classroom right now. He was doing these sorts of things back then, and he was great, creating a great following for himself. In fact, he billed himself as someone of God. He said, I am one with God, and I receive my power directly from God. So he was making all these claims and doing all these things that seemed pretty amazing to those people at the time. And he had himself quite a following. He was a, a veritable celebrity in that city. But here's the cool thing. Not only is Philip down there, and he's doing a different, he's not just doing magic tricks. Philip is healing people. Philip is driving out demons. Okay, it's kind of a higher level, right? But these people are used to seeing magic tricks. So what's the thing that draws these Samaritans then to Philip and to the word that he's got? It's the gospel of Jesus, and it's far more compelling than any magic trick. And we have a scripture here that talks about that. Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip, that means the Samaritans, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Men and women alike, they believed the good news. The gospel was so compelling that they were coming and they were being baptized right and left. So this is, this is cool. This is great news. Okay, Simon's there doing magic, but they're saying, oh, this guy, Philip, he's got something more, something more, more substantial. But they still would have been tempted to look at it as just a higher level of magic tricks, which is what Simon was doing. So something curious kind of happens in the middle of this. It's a scripture that in some ways doesn't seem to belong here. Okay, remember Philip was, was one of the disciples, and he went out. He's the first evangelist, the first missionary, and he goes, and he's healing people, and he's laying on hands and driving out demons, and he's doing all these things. And when people start to convert, start to be baptized, and he's the one doing the baptisms. So he's baptizing countless numbers of people. Word gets back to Jerusalem that this is happening, which is a wonderful thing. They're obviously not angry about it, when I say gets back to Jerusalem, it gets back to the Jerusalem church. So John and Peter and the other apostles that are there are hearing about this. But then this happens. This is Acts 8, 14, 17. I'll just read it to you. So just listen to this. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had yet not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So curious. We think about now, when you, when you receive Jesus, what do we say happens at that moment? 
When you receive Jesus, you also receive the Holy Spirit. Nobody's got to come lay hands on you. You could receive Jesus anywhere and immediately then receive the Holy Spirit. But at this point, that wasn't happening yet. So that's kind of curious that the apostles, namely Peter and John, had to travel all the way. Now, we hear what's going on. We're going to travel all the way up there to lay hands on them and help them to receive the Spirit. Now, interesting thing about this, this is one of those things where Scripture itself does not say why this has to happen, why it happens like this. But we can infer that if we know what Scripture says, and we know it in the context, and we know what was going on. With a little bit of study, we can look at this and think about why it had to happen. Number one, think about it, and I've already kind of given you a hint. One reason it had to happen is because Simon was also traveling around doing magic, creating a big following. Okay, so here comes this guy, Philip, which they don't know. He comes into town and he starts doing, for lack of a better term, magic. We call them miracles because we know where the power came from. But they're seeing, okay, Philip's doing these things. Those are awesome. Simon's doing these things. Those are cool too. We've seen those for a long time. And now, This Philip is telling us about Jesus. We want that, but is this just another level of magic or another kind of magic trick? So what happens is the apostles, with their authority, they had been with Jesus. Okay, They had received the Holy Spirit with the Pentecost, with flames and speaking in tongues and all these dramatic things that happened. They come... To stand alongside Philip. This is another reason why we know that this is Philip the deacon and not Philip the apostle. It's that apostolic authority that they want to come down. Call in the big guns. Come down and let's lay hands on them and have them receive the Holy Spirit. We also know that this wasn't just a quiet event. Okay, This wasn't like you receive the Holy Spirit. Now it's typically not anything dramatic, right? Usually, raise your hand if you had tongues of flame and stuff come down on you when you received the Holy Spirit. Still asking for the flame. It could still happen, but it typically doesn't happen that way anymore. It did then. And it did then to illustrate something real is happening here. This is far more than just a magic trick. So they come, number one, to to impart that Holy Spirit, and it is a dramatic event. It's something that you can't question. You know that something happened. So there's that apostolic authority to come down and do that. It also, this is the first time that the gospel, that that the new covenant was offered to the Gentiles. So this is a new thing. We are inviting this entire new people group into the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And it had to be something more than just a simple quiet ceremony. It had to be something big, and they needed that apostolic authority to come down and do that. So that is why we infer from the events and what happened, that's why Peter and John had to travel down there and do this. So this is where we are. The apostles are doing that. They're, they're laying hands on people. The people are receiving the Holy Spirit, and it's amazing. It is so amazing. It's, it's so powerful an event that Simon says, I want that. Simon, who makes his living traveling around doing magic tricks, he says, I have to have that power. And Scripture says this, Acts 8, 18, 19. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
he offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Anybody know what happens at this point? Do they give him money and they, they take an offering and say, okay, we're going we're gonna... to... What happens? Peter tells him to pack sand, right? Get lost. But he rebukes him harshly. So now if you just read that scripture, Simon is saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It sounds genuine. Wouldn't we all want that ability to lay hands if we could and lay on the Holy Spirit? It seems genuine. There's something about this, though. There's something about the situation, something about Simon that Peter looks at and says, this is not, this is not right. Something in his spirit is not sitting right with this request. And here's what happens. I'll just read it to you. Acts 20, 21, and 22. So Acts 20, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That's harsh. Verse 21, you have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. That's, that's tough. That's quite an accusation. Your heart is not right before. You're saying the right words, but your heart is not right. And then Acts 22 He says, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Saying you need to repent and you need to pray to be forgiven for where your heart is because it's not right. You can only know that by the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that Peter was spot on with this? How do we know is by reading the very next scripture that we have, Acts 8.24. This is Simon's response to what Peter just said. Peter said, repent and pray that you would be forgiven. Simon answers this and he says, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What's significant about this is he's essentially saying, I don't want to repent. I don't want to ask for forgiveness I just don't want to pay the penalty. He wants to go on doing what he's doing. Go ahead and and make his money and do his tricks and and do all this because that's how he made his living, representing himself as someone of God. So he doesn't want to repent of any of this. He just doesn't want the punishment for having his heart be in the wrong place. So we read scriptures in this order and you see what's going on and you know Peter was spot on. The Holy Spirit was speaking to him that this man is not right and his heart is not where it needs to be. So here's what happens. After they preach the word, they're they're preaching together, they're baptizing people, he rebukes Simon and then they go on, scripture says, and and they preach some more and they're doing great things there in Samaria. Okay, so now it's time for the apostles to go ahead and head back to Jerusalem. And they say, hey, Philip, come with us. Let's all go back to Jerusalem now. What would you have done if you were Philip and you had made this missionary journey there? You had traveled up there and you were baptizing people. This church was starting to blow up. Remember, he was in Jerusalem when the Jerusalem church started to blow up. So it was like when he left to do his journey, there were 20,000 plus in this Jerusalem church which was Peter's church, and he was seeing this. And now, 
Where would your heart have been? I know where mine would have been. I found my place. People are converting. They're responding to me. I'm able to do things in the Holy Spirit here. They're they're believing. I'm baptizing. This is my church. This is my home. And I would have dug my heels in. Here I am. I've found the place the Lord's calling me to be. I'm going to dig my heels in, and this is home. That's what I would have done. But Philip and John say, hey, or, or uh, Peter and John say, come, come with me. We're going home. We're going to go home to Jerusalem. Now, maybe he was going to go home and rest and recharge, and in his mind, he'd be coming back. We don't know that. But we do know that they headed off. But no sooner do they head off that Philip has an experience with an angel of the Lord. And I'm going to read this to you. This is Acts 8, 26. Acts 26, 8, 26 says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And actually then Luke, who wrote Acts, adds this little footnote to the end, and he says, This is a desert road. Kind of as a way to say, hey, I'm calling you down to this road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And by the way, it's in the desert, and this is not a fun place. So the angel is telling him right away. Now, at that time, Philip could have said, I don't want to go there. I've got this thing going on. I don't want to go there. He could have easily, let's show the map again real quick. So they're up here in Sychar, right up here, and he's calling him to head down, to head all the way down towards this area of Gaza, which is way down here. Now, if you've been to Israel before, or if you go with us, this is the Dead Sea down here. Okay, Masada is somewhere over in here. This whole region is desert. It's barren. The only thing you really find in there are Bedouin tent cities and camels. To this day, that's really all that's about there. Nothing weirder than going up to a convenience store and seeing a camel with a Bedouin on it tied up outside of the convenience store. Things you'll see if you go with us. Crazy. But so he's being called to go all the way down here. Again, could have said no, but he says yes. Or he's agreeable to it. We don't know actually what he said, but he ends up going down here. Now, in some cases, the word says you were transported. He was picked up and he was taken there. In some cases, it just says go. Get up and go. So for all we know, as, as Peter and John were heading straight down to Jerusalem, they just come down here to Jerusalem, okay, he probably took the more direct route, so he's traveling along this direction by himself. Probably a long trip, and he's heading down there through the desert. Got to be wondering, why am I being called to do this? What's the point of all this? But he does know this, that he's been told, go down there. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He just knows that he's been called to go. So when he gets there, here's what he sees, Acts 8, 27, 28. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Okay, there's so much there that we can, we can talk about, but explain a couple things an Ethiopian eunuch, okay, we, we think of eunuch as being a physical eunuch, somebody that's been physically emasculated, and usually they put them in charge of harems and things like that so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't have the ability 
to cause trouble in their harems, much less the, the impulse to do it. But it also means a court official, as this said, just somebody who's in the high court. Now, it could have been both. We don't know. But he was an official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, I want to stop there really quick and, and teach you something. Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, is one phrase that a lot of times um, people who want to attack the authenticity of the Bible will camp out on that. Because it's very easy to look in history and look at who the, the kings and queens of different cities, uh, uh, kingdoms were. And in this case, you can't look and find a Candace, queen of Ethiopia. You can't find that. It's not there. So a lot of people will go, there was no Candace, queen of Ethiopia. Therefore, this is all made up and it's all wrong. But here's what you need to know. The word Candace is not a name. The word Candace is a word that means great woman. It means woman of substance. And that's what that phrase is. It's referring to her character, not a name. So there were many women who were referred to as Candace because of, of, her, of her character. So you can't consider that an error. It's an error in translation sometimes that we, that we don't see. Um, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem. So this eunuch, this high court official, had traveled all the way okay, from Ethiopia, which is even it's off the map south, okay, traveled all the way up there to Jerusalem to worship. And while he was there, he was hearing teaching. He was hearing probably readings from the Torah. He was, he was getting filled up with Scripture, okay? And the reason that, that we know that he had come there willingly, he wasn't just there by chance. This region, the region of Ethiopia, had actually received the translation of the Old Testament. There's one called the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation. They had received that a couple hundred years before this. So they had plenty of time to read the word in their native language and understand what it meant and, well, to attempt to understand, right? But to get into it and to know it. So he's actually, he's, he believes in God. Their region believes in God. And he travels up to Jerusalem, again, the holy Mecca for Jews and those of that culture. So he's coming back and he's reading Isaiah. He's riding along in the chariot. Now, he being an official, he wouldn't have been... Uh, at the rains, so he would have just had all this time in this desert region just to kick back and just read. So this is where he is. He's reading Isaiah. He had probably heard something about Isaiah or maybe even heard some of it taught when he was, when he was at the temple, and he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to read this. And this is where then Philip prompts, Philip sees this happening and he's prompted by the Spirit to actually run up, it says. And we've got a picture of this. This is an actual unretouched photograph of Philip. It's a painting, if you don't know. I never want to be accused of lying to you. This is Philip running up to the Ethiopian. And it would have been somewhat accurate in this, where we would have had a driver, and he would have had a scroll Okay, he wasn't reading it on his Kindle, and he wasn't, you know, didn't have a book. It would have been on a scroll, so somewhat unwieldy. It was also the custom to read out loud back then. That was just the custom that, that you typically did. And he might have been doing it so his driver would hear some too. But Philip hears this and is prompted by the Spirit to run up. 
and then have a little interaction with the Ethiopian. And he says, he runs up and he says, do you understand what it is that you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian responds this. He says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And what he's reading is actually scripture out of Isaiah 53. And he's reading, and I'm going to read it to you here. We don't have it on the screen, but I want to read it to you. Again, this is scripture that he's reading, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The stroke meaning the punishment. So all those centuries before the prophet Isaiah, he's prophesying, prophesying about a coming Messiah. And this eunuch then looks at, after Philip is, is talking to him about this, Philip looks at him, or, or he looks at Philip and he says, who is this? Who is this person that they're writing about? So then Jesus now has the opportunity, or Jesus, Philip has the opportunity to share Jesus with the Ethiopian eunuch. And he shares the word, and he teaches them the prophecy, who this is about, and the eunuch has such an amazing experience that what does he do next? Anybody know? He literally begs to be baptized. He says, what's to stop me? If Jesus came for all of us, what's to stop me from being baptized? I can be. This is a revelation to him because he's been told, you're not, you're not a Jew. You may know the scriptures. You may know who God is and even worship him, but you're not one of the chosen. So now he's saying, Jesus came for me? I can be baptized into this? I want that, and I want it now. So... This is what happens. He's baptized. They pull over. They find some water. They pull over and they're baptized. Here's what happens next. The very next thing. Acts 8, 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. This is one of those things where he didn't walk away. He was literally snatched away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Now, in my heart, again, if I had this experience where an angel of the Lord told me, I want you to go to that place, I go to that place, I'm presented with a situation like this, and I share, I share the word with somebody, and they have an amazing, dramatic conversion right there. I want this. I want to be baptized. I want this. My impulse would have been, okay, I'm going to follow him now back to Ethiopia. I'm going to hitch a ride in the chariot, and we're going to go back, and I'm going to see what happens when he goes back and he tells the queen about all this. And then maybe this spreads throughout all Ethiopia and there's this huge revival. I want to see that. I want to be a part of that. So again, I would have said, okay, okay, that other thing was cool up in Samaria, but now I see what my true purpose is. I'm going to go down here. But the Spirit snatches him away. And he had to be willing to do that. He was willing in the midst of all this. So when we see these things like, oh, this is my place. I see the fruit that's happening here. We still need to be willing to move because God can pull us and do more amazing things. The story's not ever over, but this is what happened. 
We don't actually see again um, from him for, for quite a while after he's snatched away. Paul writes about visiting a region called Caesarea, which we saw on the map there. About 19 years later, he visit, Paul visits Caesarea and runs across this Philip. Philip's got four daughters, and, and he's camping out there. But that's really the last that we hear about Philip. Philip pretty much just... Uh, Actually, Acts 8.40 says this at the end of it. Philip found himself at, at Azotus, which, if you remember on the map, is kind of a, a port city. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So Philip goes on preaching, ends up in Caesarea, and then that's the end of his, that's the end of his story. So let's go back to that original question. Why did Philip choose Samaria to begin with? Why did Philip choose that place to go to for his first journey? Anybody have a good idea? Because they were ready to be harvested. That region was ready and ripe for the harvest. Jesus had been there years earlier. Jesus himself had been traveling through that region years earlier. And if you remember scripture in John 4, um, he meets the woman at the well. And he has this conversation with this woman at the well. And the woman at the well is so amazed that she decides she's going to run into town and tell everybody about this interaction that she's having. The disciples come up and they say, why are you talking to the Samaritan woman? They're, we're not supposed to deal with them. His response to them at that time was, look around you. Look around you how ripe this area is for harvest. It's ready. It's ready to be harvested. But does he stand there and do they harvest? No, they move on. Because at that time, those who were traveling with Jesus, they didn't understand that these people were welcome into the new covenant as well. They didn't understand that. So he travels on. This area was ready. It was ready and it was ripe for the harvest. And that's why the Spirit sent Philip there. See, that's what God will do for all of us. He will take us to those places that are ready for what we can offer. If you can harvest, if God has anointed you as a harvester and it's time to do that, he will take you to a place where you can harvest. If you're just to plant a seed, he will take you to that place. And he will present you with opportunities to plant the seed. And if it just needs to be watered, or fertilized, he'll take you to that place as well. But we need to be willing. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start coming up. God knows where the seed needs to be sown. He knows where it needs to be watered, and he knows where it needs to be harvested. And if we, just in our own understanding, we think that we know better, and we're going to find that place, what we'll do is we'll find ourselves watering ground where no seed has been planted yet. We'll find ourselves trying to harvest when it's not ready. It's all in God's timing, and that's the point of this entire section of Scripture, is in God's timing, coupled with our willingness to be moved wherever he's calling us to be. Now, that doesn't mean we're all called to go to foreign countries and do it. It might simply be your backyard. But if we're obedient to the Spirit's leading, he will lead us to these situations where great things can happen. Okay, now Philip and the eunuch, he didn't see the end result of that. He saw that one particular conversion happen, 
dramatically, but he didn't get to see the ultimate harvest that happened in Ethiopia. But it didn't matter to him. He said, okay, I've done what I've been called to do, and he went on preaching. Okay, lived a long and happy life. If we're intent on seeing fruit, that's when we try to harvest way ahead of time. We tend to, to do that because we want to see the result, right? I would, like I said, I would have camped out in that chariot and said, I'm going, I'm going there to see the result of this. Okay, because he would have been thinking, well, remember what happened with Joseph and all this stuff? I mean, he had, I could be that. I could watch this eunuch do these things. He said, I'm willing to be moved where the Lord needs me. And so that's the point of all this and what I want you to know. Only the Holy Spirit can guide us where he needs us, when he needs us. And we are in the right, when we're in the right place at the right time, and then we're obedient to what we hear, this is when the miraculous happens. This is when God can use our faithfulness to do great things in his kingdom. And that's where I want to be. So my prayer is that God would move me where he wants me, that I would hear where he wants me. Again, not all cross country, could be down the block, round the corner, could be right here. Could be the person sitting next to you. But he will be the one to show you that. And my prayer is that then I would be obedient. Because Jesus himself, Luke 10, 2, tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We need to ask, Lord, use me. And so that's my prayer as we wrap up. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, that you use us in your kingdom to do what you have called us to do. We are to play a part. We're not just to sit and watch others do the miraculous things, but you gave us the very spirit, the very spirit that will enable us to do everything that we read about in the word. There's nothing that we see these disciples, these apostles do that we are not capable ourselves of doing if we listen to you. And so, Father, we just pray that you would lead us to those situations. Open our eyes to see those things where you need us. And then, Father, I further pray that we are bold enough to be obedient in what you've called us to do. That we wouldn't step back and say, someone else will do this. But, Lord, whether it's planting, watering, or harvesting, that in season, Lord, we would know and we would have the discernment to do what needs to be done. And that comes from you, Father. So we just pray that you speak to us and you use us. Father, we want to be faithful to where you're calling us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we go into communion right now, we have at the crosses, we have self-serve. You can just take the bread or the crackers, dip them up here. My wife and I will serve you. We have wine up front if you want that. But let's do this after you have received from the Lord. So take the first minute or however long of this song to just sit and ask the Lord, Lord, do I need to be moved? Is there some place you need me to move? Is there a harvest that needs done? Is there a seed that needs planted? Where do you need me? And pray for that direction. And once you've received that direction, come take communion or go to the crosses and do that and thank the Lord Jesus that through what he did, we are now a part of this new covenant. We are part of the kingdom.
go
right here and right now, Father. We want nothing more than, to you, than for you to feel this place, God. Right now, I just want you to speak to every person in this room, God. I want you to put a vision in their minds of how you see them. God, show them their life through your eyes their worth through your eyes. Show them in a tangible way how much you love them, Jesus. How far you would go to show them your love for them. God, you are the father to the fatherless. You are the hope of every nation. You are so good and so kind we don't deserve it, Father, but we praise you and we thank you for this love like no other. Oh, I heard 
you for being our good, good Father. We thank you so much for letting your presence just fall in this place this morning, God. We needed this and we wanted this, Father. So God, I just ask a blessing over this congregation. I ask that you just protect them as they go about their week, Father, and that they come back to this place to join in this community next week, Father. We're going to continue to worship a little bit, and we ask that you stay with us if you want to just love on Jesus a little bit more and let him love on you. But if you have to go, please be safe as you're driving, and we uh, hope to see you all back here next week. Blessings on you. Oh, 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 oh,